started. Okay. Um, so, uh, good afternoon. It's ASS 233 Myth and Ritual Lecture Number 2 for 2021. And uh, the title of this lecture is In the Beginning. Uh, today, I'm talking about a certain kind of uh, myth. Um, sorry, I've got somebody raising their hand. Yes, yeah, sorry, I just wanted to jump in early. Um, in case people don't have their mics on, the chat's been turned off. Is that intentional? Yes, I have turned oh. the chat off. Um, and the reason why I've turned the chat off is I just want to be able to get through the lecture and not sort of go over time. If anyone has a burning question, um, please put your hand up and ask the question. But rather than have the chat going on, um, I prefer not to have that distraction. All good. Just check. Thank you. Thank you very much, though. Thanks very much for asking, Isaac, because that reminded me, A, that I've turned the chat off and B, that I um, uh, should say something about it. Um, now, just moving on in the lecture, uh, those who aren't used to my um, style of presentation, uh, just a quick guide. Um, you'll always find the title page, the station identification page, if you like, that says what's going, what it is. And then you'll find the next slide is always divided into two panels. One is a kind of point by point outline of the of the lecture. So what I will be going through, these, this is a summary of the points. And then over on the other side of the screen, you'll see a description of basically what the lecture is trying to be about. So it's a kind of an abstract or summary, if you like. You can always then go back and um, and have a look at a uh, at a lecture, um, and you can instantly find out. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what this one was about. So today, I want to take up the the notion of myth being a form of falsehood, um, and uh, and then I want to address historically the roots of that in the in the separation in ancient greek thought between mythos story and logos reason uh, and i'm going i'm going to make an argument against that and argue instead for the reason in myth so rather than the separation of reason from myth um, but in the process i want to talk about forms of rationalization or reasoning uh, that address the question of myth but oftentimes provide some kind of explanation for what a myth is supposed to be about uh, but these are explanations that are generally grounded in a certain assumption that is indeed that the myth itself is false um, and I want to challenge that idea before making a case instead for our consideration of myth making or mythopoeia, the process of making and creating myths. And then around that, I want to take up the, the, the first kind of myth that I want to address in this unit, the sort of the fundamental kind of myth, you could argue, which is cosmogonic myth, myths of creation. 
And I want to do that in order to develop a definition of myth and what it is that we're looking at um, and how we're going to identify what we're looking at in this unit. And then lastly, after I discuss a little bit about the nature of these cosmogonic myths, the birth of the cosmos myths or creation myths, the in the beginning myths, uh, I'll say something briefly about both the Greek cosmogony or theogony, the birth of the gods, and then finally some rep, some some comments about Marcel Detienne's paper, The Gods of Politics. So here we go. Let's start with then the, um, the concept of the myth being a false consciousness um, and then around that the distinction, the historical distinction that was drawn in Greek thought um, between mythos and logos. Now, it's very common for people to hear people say that something or other, which is not true according to the person who's talking about it, uh, that they will say that it's a myth. Um, and um, oftentimes when they say, oh, that's a myth, they'll be saying that that is a widely held belief by other people. Uh, but it's not a belief that I hold to. And this kind of logic, this, this style of reasoning then achieves its sort of uh, best expression in some ways in a TV show, which I dare say many of you have seen, uh, called Myth Busters, that these two characters in this picture here uh, run around and, uh, and bust myths, expose the falsehoods, expose the false understandings, uh, usually involving um, blowing things up um, <laughs> which, or, or crashing something onto something else. Um, as a notion of myth, um, sort of it's kind of like myth meets demolition derby or, you know, some demolition works. It, to me, it's a it's, it's, it's unfair. Now, it may well be that you will find yourself after you do this unit that you will no longer refer to a myth as some false belief held by others. I hope so. Part of the idea, too, around this, then is the notion that, um, that myth is, is, is a kind of version of history, but a version of history that got it wrong, um, or it's some kind of a fantasy, some kind of, you know, some kind of false understanding. Now, making that distinction in ancient Greece, uh, which was kind of internal to the development of what we call Greek philosophy was a critical distinction to be made as the creation of a certain kind of turning point or watershed in, in how people thought about received wisdom and how people opened themselves up to new lines of inquiry. And there's a number of commentators on ancient Greek philosophy and the development of ancient Greek philosophy would argue that 
by making that distinction, uh, it opened the door for new ways of thinking. And that's important, but it doesn't necessarily, in opening the door, close the door on myth, rather than invent new ways of thinking and with that new forms of myth. And this is the critical point. It doesn't necessarily have to be an absolute distinction between myth, fake news, reason, the real thing, the real news, the reality. But it's a dominant notion, and as I will show in a minute, it remains a dominant notion in, in modern Western thought, and it's one that I want us to move away from. Now, I want to put up, instead of a, a distinction between mythos and logos, I want to put up the term mythology. Now, you can look at the word mythology and say, oh, hang on, that's mythos and logos put together. So what is mythology? Oh, mythology then must mean reasoning, logos, about myth, mythos. And indeed, it is. And we can think of mythology as the study of myth. And indeed, that's what the term mythology means, the study of myth. But a mythology has another meaning and one which I think is incredibly interesting and very important. A mythology also refers to a body of myths. So we might talk about, for example, Greek mythology or Hindu mythology or Amazonian mythology. And so what we're talking about there is a collective, a, a body, a collective grouping of, of myths, not necessarily closed, um, and not necessarily a style of myth, but around certain topics, uh, common topics. Now, the interesting thing about a mythology as a body of myths rather than a study of myths is that mythologies, like, say, Greek mythology, and I'll try and make the case for this this week a little bit, next week as well, that these mythologies as collections or bodies of myth are made up of myths which are themselves commentaries on, reflections on, reasonings about other myths. So that a mythology is not only the study of myth by some scholar who studies myths, mythology is also the process of studying myth by the maker of a myth and the way that makers of myths are commenting upon or drawing upon the themes etc of other myths and it's in this process of commenting on and drawing upon that you begin to see the emergence of a body of myths that their subject it's not just their subject matter it's the way that the subject matter is a reflection on the subject matter of another myth so if we think of mythology then as both the body of myths and the study of myths, then we're not thinking of it in terms of some reasoned outsider looking in, but we're also thinking about the reasoned insider looking out. Okay, that's the key first key point. 
And it raises this question about whether myths disappear because they've somehow been busted and uh, or somehow exposed or somehow rationalised. Now, the example I want to give you here uh, relates to my reaction a number of years ago to a, a newspaper article that I read um, about some uh, paleontologists, okay, so fossil hunters, um, Australian paleontologists who had found the fossilised remains of a gigantic snake. So they found these fossilised vertebrae of a very big snake. And for the study of paleontology, this was very exciting. And it was very exciting because it raised all sorts of questions about the nature of the evolution of snakes and the relationship between snakes and other reptiles that have legs. Okay, so from a paleontological point of view, the discovery of a very old, very big snake is indeed very exciting, very interesting. But the thing that got me was that one of these scientists involved in the whole thing then went on to say, ah, you know, perhaps we found the, the origins of the Aboriginal rainbow circuit. And I was like, oh, okay. So the rainbow serpent, which in many, but not all, but many First Nations um, cosmologies and mythologies, the rainbow serpent is a creator figure, the, the great ancestor who in fact created the world and the people in it and created oftentimes, you know, the physical features of, of, of country. And you get these elaborate mythologies about how the rainbow serpent did this. As I, and I want to stress, it's, it's, not the, it's not the creator figure in all Aboriginal or First Nations mythologies, but many. Now, the question then came for me, what kind of assumption was this paleontologist making when he said, you know, I think we found the origins of the rainbow serpent? The assumption was that there must have once been a very big snake, actually been a very big snake, very ancient, that the First Nations peoples of Australia, and they looked at this very big snake and said, my word, that is a very big snake, isn't it? I think I'll develop a mythology about the rainbow serpent. In other words, the rainbow serpent is a figure that must have its reality in an actual being. And in the same way, you might look at a Christian uh, cosmogony or creation myth and say, well, if the book of Genesis describes the great flood, then there must have been one. Oh, there must have been a flood because without there having been a flood, we wouldn't have the myth of the flood. Now, you see where I'm going here? The point is that the, the feeling is that the, the humans, our ancestors, way back in the past, could not have imagined a flood 
without there having been one. Could not have imagined the rainbow serpent without there having been one. And that, for me, at the time, posed an interesting question. Well, if that's the case, I thought, how am I to explain the giant mango, the big pineapple, the big prawn, the giant koala, etc., etc.? Now, many of you will have visited these items of the Australian tourist landscape. You might have gone to, uh, you might have gone to um, uh, to uh, Queensland and visited the giant pineapple. Uh, you might have gone out towards the western parts of Victoria and visited the giant koala. Now, if I find these gigantic things, surely then what this tells me is that once upon a time there was a giant koala. Otherwise, how did this person imagine it? In contrast, when I think about something like the rainbow serpent, instead of thinking about the fossilised remains of a big snake, I start thinking about rainbows. I start thinking about rivers. I start, in other words, thinking about country and how people creatively engage with country. And then when I look at my Australiana um, or Australian kitsch, some might call it, of Australia's big things, and, you know, I actually, just for the record, I collect souvenir spoons of Australian big things because I just think they're very, very funny. Um, but when I look at them, I think nobody is asking me to imagine that once upon a time there was a gigantic mango when they see a mango. So why are they asking that of the First Nations peoples? Which is why I say whenever you start trying to explain some, something, anything, in terms of its origins, ask yourself, whether you are in fact swapping one or substituting one myth for another and that you are indeed engaging in a process of mythologizing and that's fine it's really interesting it says something very very interesting about human beings and their capacity to make stories but be careful how you classify and in what ways, you know, what kind of assumptions you're making about the people about whose stories you're making up your stories. This leads to certain types of rationalisation of mythology. And I want to talk about two kinds of rationalisation of mythology that to me, don't equal the full extent of what mythology is and what mythology does. The first is the idea of historical charter. And this is where we get a, a, a style of reasoning which is known as euhemerism, after a Greek um, mythologer or writer of myths, euhemerus. And this is the doctrine that mythical figures have their roots in actual historical persons and those myths thus tell us 
a kind of history. Now, the most famous example of that style of reasoning is associated with a fellow called Heinrich Schliemann. And Heinrich Schliemann was the German businessman and amateur um, archaeologist, and he became quite fascinated uh, in the 1870s with trying to find the original site of the city of Troy. The city of Troy, or Ilium, being the city that features in that very famous Greek um, myth uh, attributed as to the author Homer called the Iliad. And this is about the, um, uh, the uh, so-called abduction um, of, uh, of a queen from one kingdom uh, by the prince of another kingdom um, and how the, the king then goes off in pursuit and lays siege to the city of Troy and he assembles his group of warriors and champions and so on and they come up against the warriors and champions of the kingdom of Troy and they battle it out. Um, now, the question then became, oh, okay, so this is a really well-known story, but it must have historical foundation and we need to go and find it. And an Englishman, Frank Calvert, who lived in this area of what is now Turkey, um, uh, he was quite convinced that there was a mound uh, that had once been a city and he um, convinced uh, Schliemann in 1868 uh, to join him in, in excavating. And so Schliemann then funded this big excavation and, um, and they found the city um, of, uh, of Hisalik, um, which then became associated, oh, well, this must be Troy. And I can look at this, you know, the, the, the language of the, of the, of the catalogue of the 2019 exhibition um, at the British Museum, you know, Troy myth and reality you know what's really interesting it's a very very interesting story because schliemann as they say with a, armed with a copy of homer in one hand and a spade in the other he dug to make the earth fit the story so he kind of as an archaeologist he brutalized the site in order to make it look right but it's all built around a notion that there must have been a story about an actual place, okay? And that's the concept of the myth as historical charter. Okay, now let's keep that one and we'll put that one on hold and move on to the, the second one. Now, I mentioned this in, in, in at least one of my seminars last week. This is the concept of the moral charter. Now, my example here, this photograph is from um, northern New South Wales, not far from Byron Bay, and uh, it's a rock formation just off the shore um, called now Three Sisters Rocks. And um, the uh, local First Nations people, the Arakwal people, working in partnership with the New South Wales Parks Department, have put up uh, a didactic sign or interpretive sign um, 
at the spot so that people can walk along the track and you get to this spot and then you get this sign that tells you what's going on. I'm sure many people have seen similar sorts of signs, if not this very sign itself. It describes the Arakwal mythology of this rock formation uh, as a story of how uh, a sister went swimming and got into difficulties and was drowning and then one of and then one of her sisters another sister jumped in to try and help her got into difficulties and then a third sister jumped in all three sisters drowned and they turned into this rock formation and so this is the oracle myth the original name given to it by Europeans was cocked hat and you can see cocked hat rocks was you know, simply a statement that was reflecting on a certain gestalt interpretation of the shape of the rocks that they look like a cocked hat. So you've got another kind of style of reasoning being applied. So, okay, so we've changed the name. We've recognised the, the original First Nations um, land owners um, although without giving them ownership. Um, and so we're, we're developing a new set of understandings, all very good. The thing that drew me aside and made me annoyed was the way that the sign was then explaining that the myth was told to children to warn them about the dangers of swimming. And this is why I've mischievously inserted the picture into the picture of the surf life-saving flags and the life and the lifeguard surfboard, that somehow the myth becomes reduced to what is called a moral charter, so that it is instructing you on good behaviour. Now, the point that I would make about this is that such didactic signage, which dominates around Australia, takes First Nations mythologies and reduces them to a set of instructions on how to behave properly. So it's kind of signage, like signage that says, keep to the left, don't, don't walk on the grass, don't do this, do that. Now, if you look around your everyday world, you'll see that it's totally dominated by that kind of a signage. And you say to yourself, oh, okay, so is that all it does? Is that what this mythology does? Or is this reducing this mythology to some kind of didactic function? A didactic function which oftentimes has built into it the idea that everything is all about survival. Everything is about how, you know, how to survive. You know, beware of the beware of falling rocks, beware of sharks, beware of snakes, beware of swimming here, etc., etc., etc. To me, the fact that this is the product of a partnership tells me that the process of decolonising Australia has got a long way to go and it's not simply done by changing the personnel, that in fact we have to change our ways of thinking about the nature of people's cosmologies and their mythologies. So to me, then, the Charter myth 
And whether it's a moral charter or a history charter is incomplete. Certainly, myths can inform history. And certainly, myths can be pedagogical. They can tell, they can teach a lesson. But we shouldn't reduce mythology to simply describing histories and teaching lessons. We should always keep first and foremost in place the idea that mythologies reflect the human capacity for fantasy, for the creative imagination. And that such a creative imagination is something that we can recognise as being made possible by the human capacity to suspend the relevance of the world as presents itself to us, you know, the immediacy of the world as it presents itself to us in all of its kind of concrete facticity and our capacity to think beyond that, to, to fantasise about that, to tell stories about that. And this is the process of mythopoeia, literally making myth. Now, my picture here should be familiar, I hope. It's now in many ways out of date, the Peanuts cartoons. But I've always loved the fact that Charles Schultz, who, who drew and created the Peanuts cartoons of Charlie Brown and Snoopy and so on, uh, imagined this dog that imagined that it was a World War I fighter pilot. So we have a dog that sits and sleeps and basically lives on the top of its kennel called Snoopy. And this dog imagines it is a World War I fighter pilot. So what we have is a human imagining a dog that imagines that it is a human. Now, what's the moral of the story? Uh, well, the moral of the story is don't sleep on top of a dog kennel. Uh, the moral of the story, uh, don't go flying without an aeroplane. Uh, the moral of the story, um, I don't really know any other morals of the story, uh, or maybe look out, there's a dog coming to shoot you down. Historically, well, it tells us that all fighter pilots used to be dogs. Honestly, to do that kind of reductionism uh, is just plain limiting. It's just limiting. And so I choose an extreme example to kind of highlight that sense of limitation. So I can then now start moving towards my definition of myth. Myth is a kind of a story. So it's a Greek word for it. Mythos is story. But for our purposes, it's not just any story. It's a story that accounts for the origin of something. Stories that are, for that very reason, often thought of as religious because it is in the realm of religion that one finds accounts of the origins of things. That's very true. But there are many, many mythologies that account for many, many different kinds of origin. 
not necessarily the origins of the universe and the origins of human beings. It might be the origins of some aspect of the universe, such as a rock formation, for example. Now, if we think of it in those terms, then we can recognise that according to certain styles of reasoning, and reasoning, I stress, that we may debunk, we may bust certain um, explanations of origins. We may reject certain myths and say, oh, no, I don't think that's correct. But as we do so, we'll oftentimes be substituting a different kind of um, explanation it's, and so on. But when we do that, the interesting thing for me is what kinds of logics of sense-making do these new mythologies um, impose, generate, and so on? And just as a brief aside, before I get back to these origin myths, I want to consider a set of contemporary mythologies, which to my mind are absolutely fascinating. Many of you, I'm sure, are enamoured with the books and films of Harry Potter. Many of you, I'm sure, are enamoured in the books and films of the Lord of the Rings. No one has jumped up and down about the racist logic which one can find in these contemporary mythologies. Harry is a witch he or a wizard. He has a certain capacity. The whole storyline makes a distinction between people who do magic and commoner types or muggles, as they're called. It then talks about full-blooded and half-blooded. Now, looking at that from an anthropological point of view, that seems to me to be rather racist. And yet, there's no issue with its, um, nobody's jumping up and down. In the same way, when I look at Tolkien and I look at all the baddies in Tolkien, they're so ugly. There are bad races of being and they're really ugly. You know, they all need to go to the dentist. And then there are the goodies, and the goodies, oh, they're beautiful. And when I look at the elves, they're all blonde. Oh, my word, it's Kate Blanchett. Oh, golly, Orlando Bloom. Oh, wonderful. And I look at this and think, wow, where is the chorus of disapproval? These mythologies are massively popular. Now, if you played such these films and where suddenly all of the muggles were, say, dark-skinned people and all of the, the Harry Potters were white-skinned people, there'd be this sense of outrage. 
if you did the same, something similar with, with Lord of the Rings, so that the elves were all white, white fellas and the, and the, uh, and the orcs were all, uh, say, from Eastern Asia, oh, my word, can you imagine? Can you imagine? And yet, and people say, well, of course, it's a fantasy. It doesn't matter. But there's a logic. There's a really interesting logic. Now, when I say let's call these things, I'm not saying let's throw them out. I'm simply saying let's think about it. Let's think about how we do our mythologies and create our sense of the world. Okay, just a little aside, me on my soapbox. I want to get back to this idea of mythopoeia and origin. And the most common form of mythopoeia, myth-making, and origin and origin myths are those myths that imagine the origin of the universe. We call myths cosmogony, literally cosmos, the order. It's the Greek word for order and goni meaning from birth. So it's the birth of order. Now, I'm going to use my example here from the uh, Sanskrit, ancient Sanskrit text known as the Rig Veda. Uh, and I do so because I just think it's wonderful. And it goes in the translation. In the beginning, then neither being nor not being was. Okay, let's just stop straight away and say, what? Neither being nor not being was in the beginning. So in the beginning, there was nothing that existed, but there was, but nor was there nothing that didn't exist. Okay, that's a bit weird. Nor atmosphere, the sky, nor firmament, the earth, nor what is beyond the sky and the earth. What did it encompass? Where? In whose protection? What was water? The deep, um, unfathomable, endless abyss. Neither death nor, immortal nor immortality was there then. Well, if you've got neither being nor not being, then nor would you have death or immortality. No sign of night or day. That one breathed windless by its own energy, Svara. Now we're beginning to get a sense of something. Naught else existed then. And this is my favourite bit. In the beginning was darkness swathed in darkness. It's just like, wow, how can you get darker than dark? This was darkness in darkness. All this was but unmanifested water. So it was water, but it wasn't manifested water. Whatever was the one coming into being, hidden by the void, was generated by the power of heat, tapas, the 
the original energy. In the beginning, this one evolved, became desire, first seed of mind. Then the Rig Veda, the writer of this, thinks, well, I better explain. Wise seers searching within their hearts found the bond of being in not being. Their cord was extended athwart, sideways. Was there a below? Was there an above? Casters of seed there were and powers. Beneath was energy. Above was impulse. Now, this is a remarkable text, I think. Uh, I, I love this text because what I love in particular about it is that it imagines that time before time, the creation point, a point before being, but not only before being, but before non-being. This is what the Greeks called chaos, by which they meant the abyss. This is the Hindu mythology from the Rig Veda, but it's describing the deep, unfathomable. That's what the Greeks would have called chaos. Chaos then is not disorder. Chaos is the condition prior to order. It's the primordial moment, the origin point, that point that says in the beginning, it's beginning, it's imagined beginning. Now, my question is, and I, okay, I'll just put my question on hold for a second and I'll look at the Greek. Here's the ancient Greek version according to Hesiod's Theogony. Chaos, the chasm. From the chasm emerges earth, Gaia, and Eros. And then from Gaia, Erebus, the darkness, and Nyx, the night. Out of Nyx emerged the ether, the upper air, and Hemera, the daylight. Also from Gaia emerged Uranus, the sky as well as the mountains and Pontos, the sea. In the union of Gaia and Uranus, earth and sky, was born the Titans, amongst whom was Kronos, time, and Rhea, the ground. Locked in a permanent embrace, Gaia and Uranus were locked together so that whilst their progeny, like Kronos and Rhea, had been born, they could not emerge from this unity, which was Gaia and Uranus, this complete unity. Recognised in the ancient Greek mythologies as a, a, a kind of a coitus non-interruptus, a continual union of the male and the female, Gaia, female, Earth, Uranus, male, sky. In order to be born, Kronos castrates Uranus with his sickle. He then marries his sister and gives birth 
to Poseidon, Hades, Hera and Metis. But every time a child is born to Rhea from Kronos, Kronos swallows that child and so that they can't be born. And so talk about the sins of the parents. Here's Kronos who couldn't be born because his parents were locked in this permanent embrace and now every time Rhea gives birth to a child, he swallows the child and so again gets locked within his body until Rhea tricks him and gives him a rock to swallow rather than the child that has been born, that child being Zeus. Zeus escapes and this then causes Kronos to regurgitate the other gods and goddesses into existence. Okay, I will say more about the Greek mythology next week, but this is just a starting point. What I want you to think about right now is a very straightforward point, and that is that in this cosmogony, it's very different to the Rig Veda because it starts proliferating titans uh, and the other great figures um, of the Greek cosmos and where they, they come from through these unions and so on. That's the feature of the Greek mythology. But where the Greek mythology and the Vedic mythology share this common ground is imagining the primordial condition of chaos, the condition before earth and sky, before light and dark, before time, so it's the time before time. It's that time. Now, the critical point about this, and this, is com this comes back to my rationalisation argument, the critical point about this is that we have absolutely no evidence for that time, for that moment. We have absolutely no foundation. There is no gigantic fossil bone for this. There is, there's, there's no imagined flood. There was nobody there. There was no evidence. There's only our imagination. There's only our capacity to imagine that primordial condition of chaos. Now, you might turn around and go, well, yeah, but we've got another myth. And we know, and we know that this one's true. It's called the Big Bang Theory. And that all of these mythologies are mythbuster false. So that there was no Rig Veda. There was no... Um, theogony, they're just myths, let's bust them. Oh yeah, okay, and so what shall we put in their place? Well, there was this hydrogen cloud, and this hydrogen cloud, and that was all that there was in the world, was just hydrogen. And then suddenly it blew up in a big bang. And then and when it blew up in a big bang, and so big was the bang that it formed all of the different elements that exist in the world. And that's why all of the elements that exist in the world are made up of the same fundamental particles, the same, the elements of the elements 
the, the electrons, the neutrons, the protons, etc., etc. It's like, oh, okay. So that was the big bang, was it? Yeah, yeah. And and, and what was there? It was this hydrogen cloud. Ah, oh, okay. Chaos, really, wasn't it? Yeah, it was chaos. It was this kind of abyss. This unmanifested water, you could say. It's like, oh, well, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Were you there? No. Oh. So the person who developed that version of the explanation for the origins of the universe, were they there? Well, of course they weren't there. There wasn't anything else there then. Oh, so how did you come up with that? Well, I've imagined it. Good. Okay. That's fine. I like your myth. It's called Big Bang Theory. It's a dominant theory in modern Western physics. But it's a bloody myth. <laughs> By which I don't mean a falsehood. I mean a myth. A cosmogony. So then we start looking at all of these different myths as cosmogonies and we start saying, wow, look at all of the features they've got in common. Which one's true? And the answer is, we don't know. It's not a question about whether it's true or not. The question that's important is what kind of imagination is used to come up with these versions. So let's get moving and running out of time. Myths then are stories that deal with origins. As such, myths are often, not always, religious because they describe the origins of the universe. Many conjectures regarding origins display the logic of myth. For example, the origins of the rainbow serpent as a gigantic snake is a certain style of reasoning that seeks to rationalise another style of reasoning, a mythology on a mythology, in other words. Which follows then that myths are not false beliefs a la the mythbusters, but fanciful stories with a very strong basis in conjecture. Now, when we think of these things, then they can serve all manner of purposes. They can be historical charters, they can be moral charters, but first and foremost, they are acts of a creative imagination. And at the heart of that creative imagination is the concept of chaos, that primordial nothingness, the human capacity to imagine a primordial chaos is its most powerful creative um, act of creation, idea of creation. Okay, now finally, quickly, I've got a couple of minutes to go through this. I'll say a few comments about the Detien reading. Now, Marcel Detien is a very well-known French classicist, that is, someone who studies ancient Greece or ancient Rome. He's strongly interested in the comparative approach uh, that anthropologists promote, and with that, very interested in comparative mythology. So he doesn't just look at Greek and Roman mythology, Greek being his special area, but he also thinks comparatively. But as he thinks comparatively, and this is what he's arguing in his paper, he's saying we have to be careful always, 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 that when we make our comparisons, we don't reduce something to something else. 
So instead of trying to compare somebody else's mythology as a version of your own, try to let the thing still be itself. Now, I can show, argue, that what I just tried to do by looking at the Vedic cosmology and the uh, Greek theogony, the birth of the gods, uh, and according to Hesiod, when I put those two and I put them together, I didn't try to reduce one to the other. I simply identified that they're each thinking about a common ground, which is the origin. And that I then made reference to the Big Bang Theory and said, now, interestingly, Big Bang Theory, a dominant notion in contemporary Western physics, is similarly interested in that primordial moment. And so my common ground is the sense of the primordial and that mythologies are concerned with the primordial, the, the original. Now, what Detien says in cautioning against comparison, he then, then goes on to argue that, you know, for example, we shouldn't try to imagine Zeus as being basically a version of the Christian God. We shouldn't think about a church being a version of a temple or vice versa. We shouldn't think of a, a, a temple as being a non-political institution. We shouldn't think of a church as being non-economic necessarily. We shouldn't think of cosmologies with lots of gods, polytheistic cosmologies, as basically being versions of monotheistic cosmologies, cosmologies with a single god, where they just couldn't agree on its name. And so you have a multitude of names, but they're all the same names of the same thing. Well, maybe not, says Detier. Maybe polytheisms have to be understood in their own terms and how people relate to the world through a polytheistic universe as opposed to relating to a world in a monotheistic universe. He then goes on to, describe, to discuss the concept of the agora the marketplace, the assembly, the point of assembly. Agora is nowadays in Greek the word for the marketplace. But as Detier shows, in ancient Greece, the agora was also the political assembly point. But not only was it the political assembly point, it was also a major centre of ritual practice, notably uh, the act of sacrifice performed uh, at the altar to the goddess Hestia, the goddess of the hearth, of the fireplace, indeed of the home. So that at the heart of the Agora was the house. But this house was not purely economic and not purely political, but and nor was it purely religious as that which is neither political nor economic. But within the Greek scheme, the politics and the, and the economic were subsumed in the religious. And that the whole point was an assembly and the whole thing was like a gigantic feast to which not only were humans invited, but the gods were invited. And so the sense 
was of a cosmology grounded in the sociality of a feast. And that this is how we are to think of the Greek cosmology, their system, their, un, their, their universe. The ancient Greek cosmology then was a kind of a feast. And we have to be careful not to try to understand it through prior or a priori concepts concerning the religious, the political, and so on. And that's the argument of the Detian reading, which I now want us to discuss in the seminars. I'll call it today and say thanks very much um, and turn the recording off and say goodbye. I'll see you all in the seminars as they arise for you. Okay, thanks then. Bye.